This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the Asia Briefing Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Starrick, once again joined by my co-host, Megan Tobin. Meg, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Tom. So we've got a lot to get through today. We'll begin by trying to make sense of recent events in Hanoi, with a much-anticipated summit between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un collapsed without any kind of agreement. Thousands and thousands of words were written previewing the summit, and just as many since trying to weigh the implications. You're going to hear from John Power, who's our resident career expert on the South China Morning Post Asia Desk. He'll be looking ahead and explaining where the Hanoi summit leaves the US and North Korea and their ongoing denuclearization talks. And he's also going to explain the situation that now confronts the likes of China, South Korea, and Japan. And ultimately, the $60 million question, what will North Korea do next? Is this now just a permanent stalemate? Will the incentives for Kim Jong-un ever change? Is that even feasible? It was a failure for Trump, but that's not the story. One of the biggest upshots of all the coverage of the summit was a ton of great reporting coming out of Vietnam. Vietnam is one of the fastest growing economies in Southeast Asia, and it has undergone a series of economic reforms since the 1980s that have made the economy boom. We'll be taking a deep dive into Vietnam, which despite all that is still undercovered internationally. That's right. We'll be speaking to Chu Lu, who's our supervising video producer who was on the ground in Hanoi, and also Crystal Tai, one of our reporters on the Asia Desk. They'll be helping us understand how tech, tourism, and now summit diplomacy are transforming Vietnam tech and tourism, but don't forget trade wars and tariffs. When Donald Trump launched a trade war with China, he inadvertently did Vietnam a massive favor because his tariffs on Chinese exports have disrupted supply chains in Asia, with Vietnam emerging as one of the biggest beneficiaries. We're going to talk to John Carter, our senior editor covering political economy, to help us connect the dots there. So here's our deep dive on Vietnam, starting with the last word on events in Hanoi, as explained by John Power who was there as it all unfolded. Now, John, you were in Hanoi for this summit, which was a little anticlimactic in the end, it must be said. But just walk us through how it all unfolded. And I guess, where, where does it leave us with this big question around North Korea, which is, has come to dominate the discussion around East Asian security issues? Well, it was very much an unexpected result. Um, a lot of people had come into this expecting that Donald Trump would sign some sort of vague deal for the sake of a political win, especially as he's facing a lot of domestic pressure at home. But in the end, uh, there was no deal at all. And in fact, the president has received some supr- a surprising amount of bipartisan praise for for that decision to walk away from the negotiating table. Basically, um, the Trump administration felt that the North Koreans weren't offering enough for um, the kind of sanctions relief that they were asking for. And so they decided uh, to walk away and uh, perhaps talk another day. And now the question really is, um, what sort of negotiations are we going to see going forward, probably at the, the lower level of officials with like Steve and Began and um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, we're going to have to see what they can work out to try and narrow their differences in the months ahead. So, John, why did the talks break down? Was it around sanctions or dismantling Yongbyon or something specific? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, there are two accounts of this. The 
President Trump has said that the North Koreans were demanding essentially the lifting of all sanctions um, in exchange for uh, some movement on denuclearization, specifically at the Yongpyong nuclear facility. Uh, the North Koreans um, have said otherwise. They've said that they had what they called very reasonable demands and they only wanted some partial sanctions relief. Um, and I suppose those uh, conflicting accounts will be parsed in the weeks ahead. Now, John, a lot of the summit diplomacy revolved around the figures of, of Donald Trump and, and Kim Jong-un. Essentially, they sought to cast themselves as the only two people uh, able to move this issue forward. But with an issue like this, there are, of course, other interested, concerned spectators, bystanders, if you like, other countries in the region who have a, a lot of skin in the game, uh, a huge stake and a huge, huge question marks over their own security as it pertains to, to North Korea, China, South Korea, Japan as well. Could you maybe just walk us through the fallout from this summit as far as those countries are concerned? Yeah, I mean, I think all of those countries in a perfect world would like to see North Korea relinquish its nuclear weapons, but they perhaps have uh, different perceptions of how high stakes this is and what their other core interests are. Um, perhaps the biggest loser in all of this is South Korea. Um, South Korean President Moon Jae-in has really staked a lot of his presidency on reconciliation and rapprochement with the North. Um, and after acting as a mediator between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and bringing the two sides to the table, he's really come up empty-handed. And since the collapse of the Hanoi summit, he's been trying to insert himself into the situation again, calling for three-way talks to get the two sides um, discussing things again. Um, but I think he's, he's going to find himself under increasing pressure now at home uh, to, to, for, to say to the South Korean people, basically, that this is a productive process and that we're actually achieving something. Japan, I think, is, is the one side here that's been really left off, um, off on the sidelines. Uh, Shinzo Abe has very much felt left out of this process. After Hanoi, he's come out and said, you know, he's repeated his willingness to meet Kim Jong-un to talk about denuclearization and also the, the issue of um, the abduction of its citizens um, in, in the 70s. Um, and I think for Japan, this is a very key issue because Tokyo probably sees Pyongyang as its main security threat. Um, Japan has a very, very negative opinion of the North uh, Korean system. Um, and I think the Japanese are somewhat frustrated that despite being a very close US ally, they've very much been left on the sidelines in, compar in comparison to the, the South Koreans and even really China. So John, China's got 90% of North Korea's trade relationship, and Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un have historically a fairly close uh, relationship. Is Xi Jinping going to be one of the primary actors going forward in driving potentially a denuclearization process? I think uh, Beijing will see itself here as a key player that wants to um, guide the negotiating process uh, going forward. You know, while I think there'll be disappointment that this summit didn't produce anything towards denuclearization or sort of a, a, a reduction of tensions. Um, there is an opportunity here for Beijing um, to try and you know guide this process in the way that it, it, it likes. Um, and I think it's pretty much inevitable that China is going to play a big part in this. It was interesting to see that when Kim Jong-un was returning from Vietnam, there was a lot of speculation that he might stop uh, in Beijing and, and meet with Chinese officials, and that never happened. 
Um, so it'll, 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 it'll be interesting to speculate on how uh, relations are between them right now. There, there probably is some disappointment in Beijing and some sort of exasperation with its ally, which even though, um, you know, the Chinese famously describes the North Koreans' relationship as being like lips and teeth, I think the reality in, in more recent decades is that they actually have quite a tense uh, relationship because, frankly, North Korea is something of a headache to, to have um, on its border. Um, and it doesn't seem as pliable to, to Chinese wishes as it might like it to be. I guess that's the, the, the question mark. And a lot of the commentary has perhaps overstated Beijing's influence over North Korea. Could you just uh, speak to that perhaps? How, how much of a role does China have in terms of being able to guide the North Koreans? Well, in theory, it could have a huge role insofar as it accounts for about 90% of its trade. Um, and the, the border with South Korea is effectively a, a strip of landmines and soldiers and guard towers, whereas the Chinese border is quite open and free-flowing. And there's a lot of actual uh, trade and people-to-people people exchanges and activity that goes on across that border. Um, so in theory, the Chinese could make it quite difficult um, if they decided they wanted to shut off their, their trade routes. But again, um, the, the question for China is, how far do we want to push? Because we don't actually want this uh, regime to become unstable to the point where there could be some sort of power vacuum or, or you know, challenge to the leadership or anything like that. So that's not something they want to countenance at all. Um, at the same time, you know, the North Koreans, I think, I think there's a danger in, in Western discourse when we talk about North Korea that we imagine them to be purely reactive or subject to the, the whims of American presidents or Chinese presidents or anyone else. And in fact, you know, if you look from the very founding of the North Korean state uh, back at the end of um, World War II and after the Korean War and so on, um, they've had a very clear vision of, of what their system is and uh, their ideology is and their adherence to essentially um, some sort of absolute monarchy, a dynasty. Um, and I think there's very little that the world can say that's going to change that mindset. You know, we, we talked a lot about how Kim Jong-un was educated in Switzerland and there was all these expectations that he might come in and be this great reformer. And while he has sort of nudged the ball forward very, you know, in a very minor way on sort of some minor economic reforms, he's still very much ruling um, in the mold of his father and grandfather. Once he looked past some of his sort of relative openness to media coverage and so on, he's, he's seen quite a lot, he's heard quite a lot which is somewhat unusual, but the fundamentals of the North Korean state are very much intact. And, um, you know, if you read North Korean media, they will tell you that. They will tell you that, that we live for um, the great leader and we live for the, the glorious socialist revolution. And I think a lot of Western commentators, you know, in the post-Cold War era have a, have a hard time actually understanding that people can really believe that. So if Kim Jong-un is playing this long game and adhering to this long-standing strategy, what does he want and how is he going to work to achieve that? Uh, well, I think it's no secret that um, in Hanoi, he was hoping really for two things if we boil it down. One is sanctions relief, um, which would take some pressure off the North Korean um, economy because they're, you know, the, the sanctions have, I think, had an impact. It's, it's fairly clear. Um, and also... Um, 
a declaration uh, to end the Korean War. Um, and ultimately, from the North Korean perspective, that would mean a withdrawal of American troops from uh, South Korea. Um, so I think that's there's sort of a twin track there. They would like to be able to develop their economy on their terms. You know, this is not Sweden, this is not France, but they, I think there are clear indications that they want to raise living standards while keeping a firm grip on dissent and, and information and so on. Uh, and also they want to get the main security threat as they see it, which is the United States, out of their backyard. Um, and they would like to see an end to the state of war, which officially continues um, because the Korean War was never officially ended. Um, and I think that's, that's what Kim Jong-un, just like his father and grandfather, wanted and would have wanted. Um, and I think all of that really just leads back to the continuity of the Kim dynasty. And I guess big picture, I mean, if, if, if we go back a year ago, this was when Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un were, were saber-rattling on the world stage. After the collapse of the Hanoi summit, is there any risk that we see a return to that belligerence? And yet, I guess, on the other hand, it's worth remembering that the incentives for Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime generally, they haven't really changed. And this is a 50-year project, uh, their objective to have, have nuclear weapons. Unless that changes, how realistic is it even to expect them to get rid of their nukes at all? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I think we certainly could see a return to some sort of saber-rattling. But one thing that I found interesting was, despite the fact that the two sides weren't able to come to a deal in Hanoi, uh, both President Trump and Kim Jong-un clearly made a very concerted effort to keep their personal relationship on quite a positive footing. Even as um, Trump was talking about how the North Koreans weren't going as far as he wanted, he, he still um, lavished praise on Kim Jong-un several times during his press conference in Hanoi. And then on the North Korean side, the North Korean state media, which is really just a propaganda arm of the government, um, they couched the summit in very positive terms. They called them successful, productive talks to you know rekindle and rejuvenate their their sort of their the steps they are taking forward for a, a more positive relationship. Um, so I think both sides clearly were were leaving the door open there to further talks. And I think um, both sides I think probably have some incentive to to try and do that. Um, I mean the difficulty for Trump I think is that you know after a year or so of this process now, what does he come away with? Whereas again, the North Koreans can play the long game and you know, conceivably um, there could be a change of administration in about 18 months or so, which is, which is the blink of an eye in, in North Korean terms, right? We're talking about a state whose first leader ruled for about 60 years, right? So this is, th these, these news cycles and these you know, CNN breaking news alerts and four year presidential terms, all of this is just, like rustling in the wind for for the North Korean government perspective. Um, so, you know, Kim Jong-un can wait it out. I think he understands that America will be very, very, very reluctant to actually go to war. And ultimately that leaves you with, um, with few tools at your disposal. Um, and I think there's a reasonably solid consensus in the North Korea watching circles, to use a sort of hard phrase, but um, I think there's a fair consensus that Kim Jong-un would be very loath to give up his nuclear weapons for really anything. Because 
nuclear weapons are first of all the ultimate deterrent against um you know any kind of intervention and you know john bolton john bolton one of the more hawkish administration figures infamously raised the libya example and of course libya is a country that gave up its nuclear weapons and uh their leader subsequently uh you know came to a very bloody end and i think um the north koreans are very well aware of that the other thing is that nuclear weapons has given Kim Jong-un FaceTime with the US president. Uh, that's something his grandfather never achieved, something his father never achieved. Um, and, you know, he now, to his people, he's he's got the American Yankee imperialists, as they're referred to, um, from one perspective, eating out of his hand. So, I mean, I think this is a, a you know, this is a, a very, very difficult problem. It's a Gordian knot, and it's, a, it's eluded solving by multiple American presidents for a good reason. And so just throwing forward as dramatically as we can, what are the prospects of a third summit? And what, how would that be framed if there was a third one? I think we could see a third summit, but I think for the administration and particularly people around Trump, whatever his own personal predilections, they'll have to be able to move the ball forward at the working level before they hold another summit. Um, I think there's, there was a lot of criticism that the deal um, in Hanoi, such as it was, wasn't ready. And so in the end, you know, Trump's personal charisma or his persuasive um, abilities just weren't enough because ultimately they weren't at a point where they could actually agree on the on these fundamentals. Um, I, could, I could certainly see a third summit happening, but I think A, it's going to take some time, and B, I think the, the, the Americans to have any credibility are going to have to be able to show that there's something quite concrete coming down the track before they sit down again. It's definitely a story that we're going to continue to follow closely. It's one of the biggest stories in the world, and certainly from an Asian security perspective, uh, it's one that dominates conversation and and considerations in, in several countries. Now we're here with two more of our colleagues, Chu Lu, our supervising video producer, and Crystal Tai, a reporter on our Asia desk. So Chu, you were in Hanoi for the summit and you gained some fascinating insights into the way that Vietnam is changing and, and just how rapidly that change is occurring. And Crystal, you've also written extensively about Vietnam, particularly its booming tourism industry and the, the vibrant tech startup scene, uh, driven largely by, by young entrepreneurs. But Chu, maybe you could take us to Hanoi first and just give us some overall impressions of of the city and, and the country. Did you get the sense that Vietnam is indeed a, a country on the move? We definitely did. One of the reasons why the summit was held in Vietnam is because Trump said that Vietnam could be an example of what North Korea could become. The countries have a lot in common. They are both communist countries. But Vietnam, ever since it introduced economic reforms in 1986, has its economy has grown exponentially. It is now one of the fastest growing economies in all of Asia. And you can see the change on the streets. If you went there five years ago, you would see that everybody rode on a motorbike. Now, a lot of people have cars. There's traffic congestion on the streets in Hanoi and also in Ho Chi Minh City. I remember, uh, you know, I visit Ho Chi Minh City regularly. I remember a couple of years ago, I could go and get from the airport to my hotel in 20 minutes. When I went back a year ago, it took an hour. And, you know, I stayed in the same hotel, but because there are so many more cars on the street. And that's an example of how wealthy Vietnamese are becoming because of these economic reforms. In a lot of ways, Vietnam falls in the same example that China did. 
when China introduced its free market reforms back in 1979. Vietnam introduced them in 86. It gave people an opportunity to start businesses, to go into work business for, them, for themselves. Before that, everyone was given a job by the state. Uh, they didn't earn a lot of money. The, you know, the, the government gave people enough money maybe to survive, but nobody had an opportunity to really thrive and, and become rich. Um, with the reforms, people were able to go into business for themselves. Um, we visited a garment factory, which began as a factory that made military uniforms. After the reforms were introduced, this place was allowed to seek foreign contracts um, and has now grown into Vietnam's biggest garment factory, with clients exporting to the US, Europe, and Japan. So having this international investment, having this foreign investment, has allowed this company to grow and employ thousands of employees. Uh, Vietnam is in a position where, for instance, in China, for instance, people are demanding higher wages. In Vietnam, the wages are still relatively low, uh, comparatively speaking. But for the Vietnamese, it's higher than what they were on before. And I think it's just, it's worth noting just some of the numbers around this booming economy in Vietnam. Uh, over the past decade, the Vietnamese economy has grown an average of 6% each year. Uh, it, when they when they moved into these reforms in the in the eighties, within ten years, poverty was was cut in half, uh, and we're now seeing a booming export market. I think there was a period in the nineteen nineties when Vietnam's exports were going up twenty percent, thirty percent year on year. And so the people you spoke to in Vietnam, they must have been very positive. They must have been very welcoming of this uh, this this growth. Absolutely, absolutely, they were. One of the things that we did is one day is we went onto the streets of Hanoi and we asked just regular people what they think North Korea could learn from Vietnam. And overwhelmingly, the majority of them said they can learn from our economic reforms and our economic growth. Let's have a listen to that now. Okay. North Korea is currently reforming to better develop, so I think North Korea can definitely learn from Vietnam's experience in developing the economy. I don't know. I just know Vietnam welcomes him, and we hope he comes more often. Vietnam can learn from Kim's talent. I think he's a very talented man. Vietnam should learn from North Korea so we can reform more, and Vietnamese people can be better off. The summit highlights Vietnam's development in the past 30 years. Our country has developed a lot. North Korea probably wants to move in the same direction as Vietnam. So the voices of people in Hanoi talking about how business is booming in Vietnam. And one of the big aspects of this, of this boom is tourism. Now, Crystal, you've been covering this, and in particular, the way South Korean tourists have been flocking to Vietnam. Can you tell us a little bit about this story, how you came to it, and what did you learn about Vietnam as you were writing it? Sure. Well, I, um, I'd been living in South Korea for the past three and a half years before I moved back to Hong Kong to join the SCMP. And during that time, I noticed that there were a lot of TV programs in South Korea, uh, reality TV shows about traveling to Vietnam. Um, there was a lot of that. And then also my South Korean friends, they would often talk about how they wanted to get away to like a beachy, resorty destination like Da Nang or Hoi An. Um, so yeah, there, you know, it was, there was a noticeable travel trend uh, of Koreans heading towards or heading to Vietnam. So 
these South Korean visitors are part of a big wave of tourists that are coming to Vietnam. And last year, actually, Vietnam experienced uh, 15.5 million international visitors, which is the fastest tourism growth in Asia. It's an increase of over 20% from the year before. Um, are, is this a relatively new phenomenon? And are these mostly millennial travelers or younger travelers that are coming from South Korea? Last year, in terms of visitors, um, mainland China actually accounted for the most number, like the, the highest number of visitors to Vietnam with 3.4 million arrivals. But then South Korea wasn't actually that far behind. Um, there were about 3.16 million South Korean visitors, and this was an increase of about 46.5% from the previous year. So that's a huge increase. I would say that among these travelers, what's really interesting with South Korea is that the country democratized in the late 80s. And so um, before democratization, South Koreans were actually not allowed to travel outside of the country unless they had special permits. Um, so what we're seeing now is this new wave of travelers who've just started exploring outside of their own country. Um, this includes millennials, but also older Koreans as well. And a lot of them actually go on these package tours um, of Vietnam. And I suppose it's not quite criticism, but when you speak to the local businesses, some of them do note that a lot of these Korean, the older Korean travelers especially, they tend to kind of stick to their own. So they prefer to go to Korean restaurants. They only want Korean speaking salespeople or guides. Um, and it's it's become very like Koreanized in a lot of ways, like the, their way of travel. But then there's also that group of younger travelers who are more of like the backpackers who are like looking to get an authentic local experience, which is really cool. How has this changed Vietnam? Are we seeing more Korean restaurants, uh, Korean TV shows, sure. people, Korean language, uh, Korean language signage, tourism information? I guess, yeah, you would definitely notice more signage on the streets just to attract Korean tourists and visitors. But then I think that the K-wave has pretty much hit all of Asia at this point. And, you know, with or without these Korean tourists, um, Korean culture would have permeated into Vietnam regardless because it's just so popular with like K-pop, K-dramas, K-fashion, K-beauty, K-everything. What I found interesting is I was in Hoi An back in December and something I noticed is all the restaurants, all the shops, they all had signage in Korean. And there was a large number of Korean tourists, families who would come on vacation together. I remember um, you know, at, at the restaurant, you sit down and the menu comes in Vietnamese, English, Chinese, and Korean. That was very new for me. It was the first time I'd seen Korean signage in Vietnam, and I go once a year. Yeah, I think that's uh, partly because some of these South Korean airlines have started offering uh, daily flights from Busan to Da Nang. And I think, Crystal, is it in, even in your story, you mentioned that South Korean tourists are now outnumbering mainland Chinese in Hoi An, which is a resort, a resort town about, about you know, half an hour's drive from yeah. Da Nang. So what's really interesting also is the two groups experience very different receptions in Vietnam. So for the South Korean visitors, I would say that they tend to be more warmly received because of the popularity of Korean culture and um, also because there's less of a an ugly tourist image, I, I suppose, associated with them. Um, whereas Chinese visitors, perhaps because of historical animosities and because of um, bad behavior on part of certain tourists, they haven't been as well received. So I think 
two years ago, the city of Da Nang actually published a booklet on do's and don'ts specifically for Chinese tourists, which was quite embarrassing for a lot of people. Like they didn't they didn't like the fact that they were being told what to do. So we've got this this booming tourism industry that, as we've heard, is is transforming Vietnam. Just uh, in terms of overall revenue, it's currently last year was tourism revenue was thirteen point four billion dollars US which is an increase of 22% from the previous year. And the Vietnamese government wants that, to, wants that to go up to 25 billion annually by 2020, which is a, a dramatic increase. And in turn, that's fueling an, an, an aviation boom. Vietnamese airlines are expanding and are now starting to fly directly to the US. In turn, they almost don't have enough jet fuel to keep up with that expansion. But the other aspect of Vietnam that's, that's driving this transformation is this startup culture, this, this spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, which is driven by this, this young population. Chu, can you, can you tell us about some of the people you met in Vietnam who were, were working for themselves and, and thriving? It's not just the young people, but yes, um, Vietnam today presents opportunities for young people that didn't exist for the previous generation. And there are a lot of young people in the country. 60% of its 95 million people are under 35 years of age. Uh, one person we met is actually an older woman. She's in her 70s now, but she remembers having a government assigned job before the reforms. She worked as a clerk, and she wasn't earning enough to get by. So what she did is she would cook on the side. You know, um, she learned she started cooking when she was just a child. She was taught by her mother and her grandmother, and she started she started making homemade goods and selling them on the side just to make a little extra income. When the reforms were introduced, she ended up uh, taking part in a cooking competition and winning it, got the attention of Anthony Bourdain, who said her chicken was the best she'd ever had, and that really took off for her. She now owns a restaurant in Hanoi, and she's one of the city's most celebrated chefs. So here's an, so here's an example of somebody from the older generation who experienced living under um, a, a government-controlled economy and has really thrived when the free market reforms were introduced. So in 2018, there were nearly 40,000 startups entering the market in Vietnam. A lot of these were in the tech sector. Crystal, can you tell us a little bit about that? Last year, the deputy prime minister of Vietnam actually announced that there, the government is hoping to increase the number of businesses from 500,000 to 1 million by 2020. So that's um, they have high expectations over there, I would say. Um, the startup scene has really matured, though, in the tech scene as well. Um, currently, Vietnam has about 250,000 engineers, and the number of tech jobs have actually doubled over the last three years. Um, and, you know, adding to that, so Vietnam's IT labor costs are actually 40% cheaper than in China and India right now. So I think a lot of companies are looking to Vietnam to outsource their, their tech labor. And can you tell us about who are the people that are participating in the tech startup scene? Are they young people? Are they returning from overseas? Who's really driving this? Um, I would say that it's a mixture. I mean, there are so many young people in Vietnam. so. Um, and, and they're so they're so excited, they're so um, eager to participate. But then also a lot of overseas returnees from the U.S. in particular, um, who have studied in you know San Francisco, are, are heading home as well. Um, what I think is really noticeable, though, are the regional differences that exist right now. So it's not quite like you know overseas versus local uh, Vietnamese uh, entrepreneurs. It's more that 
Um, in the north, it seems like people are participating perhaps in maybe the sales side of startups or like the marketing side, whereas in the south, um, in Ho Chi Minh, there are a lot of activities, a lot of meetups, um, a lot of like, there's a lot of, it, it's quite dynamic, like the startup scene for, for entrepreneurs. There is a North-South divide, which is historical in Vietnam, because they were two separate countries reunited 40 years ago, 45 years ago. But um, I think when it comes to the tech sector, uh, Da Nang is actually a really booming place for tech. They've actually built a tech city there where companies, they're inviting um, US-based companies, um, other foreign companies to come and start headquarters in Da Nang. And I remember I did a story about this um, before I joined SCMP, uh, uh, where we visited Da Nang and they're actually training, a, you know, you can call it an army of tech experts. Uh, we visited a high school for the gifted and, you know, they took kids who excelled in math and started training them in computer programming. When they graduated from high school, these kids were able to pass the Google engineer's entrance exam. So is it fair to say that Vietnam is the Silicon Valley of Southeast Asia? I think it's fair to say that Vietnam wants to become the Silicon Valley of Southeast Asia. Is it there yet? Maybe not. I mean, there's still a lot of competition between China and India. But as Crystal said, labor in Vietnam is 40% cheaper. Vietnam is investing in its population to, to give them the expertise to attract that foreign investment so they can have this reputation of becoming the Silicon Valley of Southeast Asia. So there we have it, Vietnam, a country on the move. And today we've heard about the factors that are shaping it, helping it transform tech, tourism, and of course the, the economic reforms that were put in place 30 years ago. So Chu and Crystal, thanks for being here. Chu, you continue to make great videos that we can see on scmp.com. And Crystal, everyone can follow your work on the Asia Desk also at scmp.com. So we're joined now by John Carter, our senior editor covering political economy. Welcome, John. Glad to be here. So, John, Donald Trump's trade war against China has led to about $250 billion worth of Chinese exports being subject to tariffs. How's that been affecting Vietnam? Well, Vietnam, being a border state to China, it has benefited from certain industries deciding that because of the tariffs, they can no longer profitably operate in China. So they're moving to Vietnam. And so uh, Vietnam is benefiting from a lot of new industries coming to China. Of course, that creates more income, more jobs. And so net-net, Vietnam is doing very well. Can you explain a little bit which industries are migrating to Vietnam and which industries are we likely to see more of in Vietnam? Well, this, and let me first say that this started before the trade war because of high costs in China. That uh, 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 low-tech Chinese industries, uh, particularly shoes and clothing, were already leaving China for Southeast Asia and Bangladesh. And so Vietnam was already benefiting before the trade war. But this process has accelerated because of the trade war. And so starting with low-tech industries like shoes and, and manufacturing and moving up the manufacturing scales to other industries, for instance, we've heard that the leading manufacturing of motorcycle helmets is thinking of relocating to Vietnam or Cambodia, which is another popular destination, because of high costs in China and the effects of the tariffs. Just on those tariffs, could you explain a little bit more about how tariffs work and how they influence the thinking of these firms? Well, the, the tariffs work when you export a good from China to the United States. When it enters the United States, you have to pay a fee, uh, whether it's the manufacturer yourself, usually it's a middleman who 
moves the goods from China to the United States. And it's the middleman who has to post a bond, pay a fee to the United States government. That is the tariff. And so the U.S. government gets income. Um, and what this does is adds to the cost of the good for whoever's buying it in the United States, be it a wholesaler or a retailer or eventually the American consumer. So think of it as a 10%, there's 10% tariff on 200 billion Chinese goods now. So think of it as a 10% cost increase for the producer in China and for the consumer in America. So if you're the consumer, can you afford to pay the extra 10%? If you're the producer, you have to somehow figure out how to reduce your costs or otherwise offset the 10%. So for example, if there's a, maybe a sofa has been uh, manufactured in, in China uh, and the, the, the retailer in the US wants to sell it for, for $700, suddenly that, that price tag goes up to, to something like a thousand and, and that impost is enough for them to, exactly. to, to disrupt the supply chain and them to move their base from from right. China to Vietnam. Because it prices the Chinese manufacturer out of the market. And so the, the retailer in the U.S. has to rethink their whole supply chain. How do we reduce costs so American consumers are willing to buy this product? And I guess it's, it's worth noting this is not just uh, low-quality, low-skilled, um, you know, like clothing and sofas. It, there's a, a tech industry side to this. Uh, Goatech, which is the Shandong-based manufacturer of Apple's wireless headphones, they're moving production to Vietnam. Sure. And that is certain tech industries are moving. But one uh, limitation on this is that Vietnam is still a relatively less developed country. And so high quality skilled labor is still relatively scarce. And so that limits the ability of high tech to move from China to Vietnam. Now, over time, Vietnam will train its workers or Apple's suppliers will train its workers and tech will move. But uh, at the moment, the, the tech movement is a lot smaller than is, say, shoes and clothes and furniture. With Vietnam being such an important trading partner with China, is this also an opportunity for the U.S. to potentially gain more of a trading relationship with Vietnam? Like you said, kind of pricing China out of the market. Sure. I mean, in, in a lot of industries are, you know, uh, are being welcomed by China, by, by Vietnam. There are many Vietnamese fixers, let's call them, whose job it is to try to convince Chinese industries or foreign industries operating in China to move to Vietnam because of the benefits that are there. Um, and so this increases the relationship, as you say, between China and the United States. The investment in Vietnam is also not just from China, right? It's also from Japan and South Korea. Correct. And so we're also seeing some of the other big players in East Asia come in here. All of the big and developed countries in Asia are participating in Vietnam because of, uh, basically because of their cost structure. It's lower cost to produce in Vietnam than it is in China, than it is in Korea than it is in Taiwan than it is in Japan. And so they're present in Vietnam for that reason. And the Taiwanese, for instance, were in Vietnam long before the trade war, years and years before the trade war. And they were some of the first to move factories from, say, the Pearl River Delta in China to Vietnam because of the cost structure. And that Pearl River Delta is one of the main export manufacturing hubs in China. That's right. So in a nutshell, I mean, what are the, the major benefits for Vietnam in this? We're talking uh, 
obviously jobs, training. Yeah, like that. I mean, it's increased investment um, because all of the money coming from the outside to build the factories, to train the staff, to uh, build the infrastructure that needed to get the products from Vietnam to the rest of the world. So it's it's increasing um, the wealth of Vietnam. Uh, but at the same time, there are negative benefits mm. or negative implications like higher land prices. Land prices are increasing dramatically in Vietnam because of higher demand. Um, and that hurts locals because, of course, it, it affects their affordability. So it's, it's a balancing act. But because of the jobs and because of the income that those jobs bring, it's net positive to Vietnam. Is this also going to be a larger trend going forward where we're going to see more workers in Vietnam engaging in training to up their skill level? And if land prices are rising and incomes are rising, this is going to be a longer term trend? Sure. And not just in Vietnam. It's all of the lesser developed countries in Southeast Asia and in Asia in general, including Bangladesh. Um, you're going to see producers move to um, those countries because of lower cost structures. And as they develop, I mean, 20 years from now, now maybe Vietnam is so developed that it is a high cost country. And so people, the manufacturers will move out of Vietnam. But in the interim, it's, as I say, is a very net positive for Vietnam. And this movement will continue. So what's the final analysis? Are these changes sustainable? And if the trade war concludes soon, are we going to see these changes be lasting in terms of Vietnam's rebalancing of its primary trading relationships? Or are you know most partners in the region going to end up moving their manufacturing back to China? Well, moving manufacturing is a lengthy and expensive process. Once you decide to do something, you do it. Um, and, you, and that's done for a while. And so you need a significant motivation to reverse it. So what you're likely to see, yes, you're likely to see if the trade war ends, companies that were considering moving but hadn't done anything about it yet might decide to stay put. But com companies that had already moved or were in the process of moving are likely to continue and and finalize that because, as I say, it's expensive. Once you start that process, you're pretty much committed. In the future, and as I said before, this process of movement was taking place before the trade war because of high costs in China, labor, land, taxes, costs of raw materials. Small businesses were getting squeezed and the trade war made it worse. Uh, so that movement is likely to continue, but at a slower pace, smaller scale, because the extra 10% tariff is gone, uh, but it will continue. Um, where China is going and what the Chinese government is promoting is high tech, uh, which is less labor intensive, is more capital intensive and uh, technology intensive. And so that is where what will prosper in China, uh, that'll eventually trickle down to Vietnam, but it will take years because as we've already described the infrastructure in China is is very well developed, and there are much high uh, highly skilled labor in China that is, Vietnam doesn't have yet. That's great, and I mean we've heard a lot today about this transformation of Vietnam through technology, tourism, and clearly trade and tariffs are a big part of that. I'm sure you and your team on political economy will continue to cover that story, John. John Carter from Political Economy, thanks for being here. Thank you. 
You've been listening to The Asia Briefing. My name is Megan Tobin. I'm one of the reporters here on The Asia Desk at the South China Morning Post, along with my co-host, editor Tom Sturrock. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And don't forget, we're filing stories from across Asia and around the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at scmp.com. Thanks for listening.